0: Almighty God, today we come in your presence as a family of faith. We are made brothers and sisters because Christ, our Lord, has invited us to be that. First with him and under your household, under your roof. He has invited us to be co-heirs with him as we receive your grace and all the riches of your love. And since we are co-heirs, we are then brothers and sisters because of our new life in you. We are brothers and sisters who, while we may not share the same physical DNA, we share the spiritual DNA of the same Holy Spirit surging through our being. And so we are of one accord, if we choose to be, in that spirit. Therefore, Lord, we uphold those who are grieving and suffering with their losses right now and share the burden with them. Lord, we uphold one another as we understand that there will be those who are suffering through financial difficulties, through major stresses in their lives, moves, changes, fears of the unknown, anxiety about things we don't have any control over. We are united together in one spirit as we see our loved ones growing older and losing control over their lives, as we see ourselves growing older and losing control over our lives. We are united, Lord, in our prayer for those who are suffering in hospital beds and nursing homes and other places where they are receiving care in their homes and in loved ones' homes. We united, Lord, in our prayers for the caregivers, the ones who bear the burdens of others joyfully and with faithful determination. We especially pray, Lord, for the medical personnel, and we don't even have the capacity to name all of the roles that are fulfilled, Lord, but when we imagine those who have put themselves right in the face of difficult times and hardship, for the sake of others, we see medical care and all the resources associated with it and the people who make that happen. We see those who provide emergency medical care and those who provide emergency rescue and recovery from accidents and injury. We, provide, we, we see those who provide uh, r- relief when there are accidents and fire and, and first responders are there with their training and their apparatus and their compassion. We see the self-sacrifice of law enforcement officers to provide for peace and security. We see them suffering, Lord, because of the actions of a few who have done things that we all disapprove of and agree that are immoral. And we see, Lord, those who have suffered oppression unjustly. We see, Lord, how you hate oppression and how you call your people to be better than that. And we ask, Lord, that you might make us more like you in the way that we see each other, to see souls of sacred worth to you. But, Lord, we ask for wisdom and discernment. We ask for genuine honest negotiation and communication during difficult and trying times. We pray, Lord, that where Satan is providing fuel for chaos, that you would take over and bring your great majestic cosmos, your order. We pray, Lord, that you make us your instruments of order. Lord, there are many things in our family of faith right now that are coming to mind, many specific needs, and so we join together in that silent affirmation of each other's particular call to you and cry for help so that we're not alone in that we pray together and feel the same spirit. And finally, Lord, we share words in common that Jesus taught us and then we say them together as a way of being one with you and one with each other. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Think about that. Those words in that prayer address many of the things that come to mind right now. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power. You know, when you say those words, they're pretty comprehensive, Uh, many, 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 many years ago, I read a little booklet and applied it and found it very fulfilling. Um, It was called Praying the Lord's Prayer in an Hour. And basically, if you took the elements of the Lord's Prayer and you prayed over each element with some determination, you know, to, to, you know, our Father who art in heaven, what does that even mean? You know, and and it becomes a, a deeper sort of recognition of of what Jesus meant for us to take away from that prayer. So I commend that to you and uh, encourage you to do that. Today we're going to start a new sermon series, and this series is meant to deal with the times we're living in right now. It's become impressed upon me over the last uh, months that we are as Shiloh as the church, capital C, church community or family, a people who are leaving behind something and entering into a wilderness something and looking for a promised land something. And that's what it's been feeling like to me. And in some of my communication with you, I've even used those words, you know, and so this series of messages is actually just thematically about wandering in the wilderness. But before we can talk about wandering in the wilderness, we have to talk about how we get to, how we got in the wilderness in the first place. And we had a very uh, a good time in the Sunday school class today, and I would recommend that you get the Sunday school notes. Remember that the sermon notes and the Sunday school notes came in your email this morning if you have yourself signed up for our emails. They were on your app, if you got the app. They were on the Shiloh Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group. And uh, they're available through a link in your email that you get on Fridays from me. So, And then if you just email us or whatever, text us, and say, I want those notes and I'm not getting them, we'll help you find a way to get them. But the, the study notes were particularly in-depth at showing us just how the people of Israel became oppressed by Egypt and found their way out of Egypt. So what we're going to talk about as we get ready to examine our times under that particular lens is that, that maybe the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes nine one uh, nine, you know, where he says there's nothing new under the sun. You've heard that one before. You know, he's right. That that I will will take the approach. In fact, I even found a passage to support this because I've always said, you know, if you're going to keep saying certain things over and over again, Dan, you ought to see if scripture says it too. Because maybe scripture's going to say, you should stop saying that. And so I checked. And sure enough, scripture says that we will see, Ecclesiastes, by the way, is where this is stated, that while our... Technology changes as time passes. The human condition doesn't really change. The whole essence of the Ecclesiastes or Solomon's sort of gripe session is to say, I've got it all. He says, I'm the richest guy in the world. I've got all that any person could ever want. And what I realize is that it's meaningless without God. And in this long sort of lecture he gives about how wisdom has made him realize the significance of God and the insignificance of things, he gets to a point that he's saying what I would like to claim as my modern version of the same statement, which is, is people don't really change, technology changes. And by technology, I don't mean electronics. That's what we think of as technology now. Technology at its root is a word that describes how we get things done, the means by which we get things done. So the invention of the wheel was a technological achievement. The invention of the airplane was a technological achievement. Figuring out how to dig up furrows in the ground with the help of a tool and a mule was a technological achievement. So when I talk about technology, what I'm saying is is people don't change in their nature very much, but technology changes and that tends to make us think that we are different somehow from the people we read about in the Bible because they seem less sophisticated than we are. But they were very smart people and they were very sophisticated people in their own experience of things. They just didn't know everything we know about certain technological innovation. And so we, we can look at our times through the biblical lens, we absolutely can. And I think that one of the things God has really called me to do is to help us all find that way of seeing our times through the biblical lens. And so that's what we're going to do with this series. We're going to use, interestingly enough, the scripture readings after today will actually be from the book of Revelation. We're gonna read the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, but then we're gonna come back to the Exodus wandering and the book of Numbers wandering and the Deuteronomical Deuteronomy is a tough word to spell, try it. We're gonna come back to that and look at, uh, I was looking to you because if nobody else thought that was funny, I knew you would. Yeah, but your eyes are smiling. So anyway, we're gonna take the the future view of of the human situation and the historical view of the human situation and blend them together into a view of our current situation. Do you think we can accomplish that? If you're waiting to see whether Pastor Dan can safely negotiate this tightrope that it just put out in front of himself, you don't wanna miss a week of this. You need to be here every week because this could be very exciting as I tilt this way and I tilt that way and you don't know if I'm gonna make it. With God's help, I bet I can. So we're gonna start with the whole premise of the wilderness wandering. And in order to understand that, we need to go back to the book of Exodus and to the circumstances of the people of God during the Exodus. So the people of Egypt, or, or the slaves of Egypt, became that way Thusly. They, were, they were a small clan of people, relatively speaking. I mean, there were hundreds of them, but they were a small clan of people who were descended from Abraham, Isaac, and uh, eventually Joseph, one of the sons uh, of, Donna, what happened to me? Jacob. This went blank. Jacob. I just, like Jacob was there on the tip of my tongue and he just went, Thank you. I always look at Donna because if I don't remember something from the Bible, she usually does. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Joseph is the one, you know, who had the really cool coat and and his brothers threw him into a well and then sold him to the Egyptians and then he ends up being really important in their lives and the whole people of Israel end up being saved because of Joseph's discomfort. Let's just talk about that for a minute. If anybody is unhappy about the discomfort you're experiencing in your life right now, and you think God's being unfair to you because your discomfort is so uncomfortable. What happens if it turns out that in the long run, God's got a plan for using your discomfort to make a great thing happen? Just saying. Well, it was a great thing because the people of Israel were saved. In fact, all the people that Joseph led were saved from a very difficult crisis but over time all the people of Israel who lived in the land of Goshen that is this beautiful beautiful neighborhood outside of you know Cairo like it was this beautiful place that was rich farmland and everything you know the Pharaoh was so grateful to Joseph for his his leadership that he awarded Joseph's people the best place to live and then eventually scripture tells us that a new pharaoh came to power who did not remember the covenant with joseph and his people and this particular pharaoh decided that these people were a threat they had the best of everything and they had multiplied now they're not a small clan anymore they have the capacity to be a country in and and of their own right and so the Egyptians enslaved them. You know we do that whenever we're afraid of something, we control it, we suppress it, we oppress, especially those things that we're afraid of and they had been enslaved for 400 years. That's a lot of generations of people so that by the time God decided to respond to their cries for mercy. I think it's interesting because I wonder how long it took them to remember who they are and where they came from so that they called out to the God of their ancestors. Because that kind of interests me. Because eventually they did call out to God and God answered and he brought Moses onto the scene and if you've seen the Ten Commandments movies in various forms, you know that Moses was used to Convince pharaoh that God was in charge not pharaoh and that the people of God were going to be freed if God had in, Intended for it to happen. It was going to happen and so systematically God defeats the signs of Egyptian culture and wealth Egypt is emblematic in the Bible of human folly and vanity and and self-will and popular culture. The Egyptian culture of that day could be viewed as the most decadent version of Western culture today. And so you wanna think in those terms because God basically said, I'm gonna set my people free but it's more than that. I'm going to set them on a right path. I'm gonna set them in a moral direction that is completely different from what you have taught them is normal. And so up to this point, the people have been enslaved by Egypt, but they haven't exactly found any particular problem with Egypt other than that they are in the wrong position. In other words, generations of them have been born assuming that the only reason they're slaves is because the Egyptian culture is better for some people than it is for others, and they happen to be on the wrong end of it. So what they're looking for in the way of deliverance is deliverance from slavery. They want to go from being at the bottom of the food chain to being at the top of the food chain. So what they're looking for is deliverance from slavery, but what they're wanting, well, doesn't it sound a little bit like what the apostles and the disciples of Jesus wanted? They wanted a king who was going to get rid of the Romans. And they wanted a king that was going to run Israel the way it was supposed to be run. So what they were saying was, we don't want to be oppressed, we want to be oppressors. And we want a king who will lead us from being the suffering, oppressed people to being the ones who are doing the oppressing. Now, they wouldn't have said that, but let's let's just look at human history for a minute and recognize that whenever there's a revolution, the people who end up in charge are just as wicked in their own way as the ones that they overthrew and this is why the biblical idea of revolution is so radically different from the human idea of revolution so this is what happened they eventually were allowed to leave Egypt and they took wealth from Egypt they took power from Egypt when they witnessed the destruction of Egypt's army and they went into the wilderness. And during the time when they were in the wilderness, God began to teach them a new way of being the people of God. They had to unlearn the Egyptian ways and they had to learn a new set of rules. And they basically learned a variety of lessons about how life under God's authority was going to go. And as long as you put your faith in God, you'd be fine because God was going to provide you with all the food you needed. He wasn't going to let your clothes wear out. And he was going to make sure that you had plenty of water. And he was going to teach you how to live under God's authority. And the most important thing that happened is they had to learn to follow a pillar of fire by night and a great cloud by day that was representative of God's presence among them. And so they were being taught to literally follow God. So in the wilderness, their job was to remember that they were no longer under the authority of Egypt, which represents the world, the the entirely humanistic interpretation of life. They were under the authority of God and they literally followed God wherever God led them. So they would pitch their tents, they would camp, they would eat their manna, they would study and learn and live together, they would take care, because they didn't have to fix anything, nothing wore out. So what were they learning to do in the wilderness? They were learning to be the people of God. And when they learned to be the people of God they would be allowed to go into the promised land. And the culmination of God's plan was that right before they could go into the land of promise to live in this theocracy or this, this rule of God society that they were about to take on, the thing uh, that they needed to do was get a basic set of rules to operate by. And so Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, right? You remember that part because it's in the movies. Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and... What does he find? They got desperate, they got scared, they got anxious. They realized they took all of Egypt's money with them but they didn't have any place to spend the money so they decided to turn the money into a golden calf and worship it. Which I'm sure you recall did not please God and so God did some major punishment. And that was kind of the event that said, okay, they're not as moldable, they're not as humble and willing to learn as they need to be. So God immediately did away with the most stubborn and resistant people, you know, Ever G. Robinson, down the, you had to see the movie right? One, fav- one of my favorite actors from the old days. And, you know, that was it. Dathan, down the, down he went. So then God says, okay, so the rest of you seem like you're sufficiently shaken by this and you, you've begun to remember who I am and how this is going to go down. And so they wander in the wilderness a little while and Moses goes back up and gets another set of the Ten Commandments, you know, and, and then he comes back and they get to the edge of the wilderness and they're ready to look into the promised land so they send these spies 12 spies are going to go in and spend uh, about a month exploring the promised land and when they come back after their exploration 10 of the spies whine and complain to the group about how they're big scary people over there and we're like grasshoppers around them and we're all going to die. Remember, this is the same people who watched God do 10 plagues to destroy the superpower nation of their times. This is the same people who saw God crack the earth open and dispose of the ones who were willing to give up worshiping God in favor of worshiping an idol they created with their own hands. This is the same people who have been getting manna delivered to them every day free of charge, same people who got fresh water wherever they needed it, regardless of whether they were in the middle of a dry wilderness, these people came back from exploring the wilderness and said, nah, it's too big for us, it's too vast, and the people are too scary, and we can't do it. 10 of them said that, two of them, Caleb and Joshua, came back and said, have you seen the grapes over there? They got grapes as big as watermelons over there. Man, it is awesome. We are going to be so lucky when we get over there because as soon as we kick their butts, because, you know, God's going to get them. Did I just say that? Oops. God's going to get them, and then we're going to get the grapes. Right? And, And everybody says, you two are cracked. You guys are nuts. Yeah, you two are nuts. Yeah, you're right, Courtney. And it's like, you know, crazy for Jesus. That's what we are. We're just crazy for Jesus. But I have to tell you sometime about how I have making, I've been making that claim since I was 17 years old. But that's a long story. No, it isn't actually. It's just an old story. But anyhow. The difference was these two guys saw the big grapes and all the benefits of being in the land of God's promise and how all it took was for God to do what God always does and everything would be fine. But 10 of them said, nah, this is too big for God. (laughs) Seriously? Well, it's because they were focused on themselves. The problem was they were focused on themselves. They didn't see it as God's problem. They saw it as their problem. And it means that no matter how many times they saw God at work, they never understood that it's God at work. And that it isn't God using you. It isn't like God sits in heaven with his notebook out and says, You know what I need right now is somebody who's really good at fighting giants. I need somebody who's really good at harvesting massive grapes. I need somebody who's... It's not like God needs you or me for anything And if you remember the series about men and women after God's own heart, what we understood was is what God needs is people who are willing to put their faith in God. That's all God needs, but God doesn't need that, but God uses that. And so the difference between the two guys and the ten guys is the two guys said, God's got this, let's go. But then it becomes apparent that while they're on the cusp of living into the promise they're not ready, that most of those people are just too hard-hearted, too set in their ways, too completely wrapped up in themselves to recognize that they could be the most complete version of who they are if they would give their lives entirely to God. And that with God's help, all of who they are is more than sufficient to take on any task that God gives you. Joshua and Caleb got it. But a whole generation of people just couldn't get it through their heads that that's what church is really about. Yeah, I said that. They called it being the people of God in the promised land. We call it being the people of God at Shiloh United Methodist Church. I mean, it's still the same thing. It's still the same thing. We're either the people of God or we're the people who go to church here. And we look at our problems as something we can accomplish within our means and our gifts and graces. And, you know, so what we're looking at, and this is what this whole series is going to be about. We're looking at the church right now, and we're saying, holy smokes, in January, we were looking at a pretty tight budget based on the projected income. We were looking at a church that was on the verge of going through a major political crisis because there was going to be a general conference that would lead to a split in the church denomination. And our congregation was going to have to figure out at probably about this time what we were going to do about it. So we were kind of enslaved to the world in a manner of speaking, we were dealing with worldly matters and we were trying to figure out how to deal with worldly problems. And then COVID comes along, boom, plague, right? One of my favorite jokes of the last few weeks has been, you know, i walk through Walmart or something. There's all these people wandering around without masks on and they're getting in my face or whatever. And I'm thinking, don't you know, there's a plague on, you know, that's because I love old movies and people used to say that about the war, right? Don't you know there's a war on, you know, loose lips sink ships. Unmasked faces cause disease to spread. I, you know, whatever. It's just a joke in my mind. But the point is, is that we, we can really look at this as a plague. We really can. We can see this as a plague that God for whatever reason is allowed to happen and and it doesn't matter whether you know we believe it's real or whether we believe the government's manipulating the bottom line is is all of our lives have been disrupted by this thing utterly and completely disrupted there are people who are suffering because isolation and lack of human contact isn't good for you There are people who are suffering because their jobs have been lost as a result of this thing. There are people who are suffering and angry because it doesn't feel like the government's in control of anything or knows what to do. And there are people in the local church like this one who are going, What happened to our church? We closed the doors for three months. And there are people who, when it's all said and done, can look at this in retrospect, and see that it was a plague. And after the plagues that were inflicted, nine of them were inflicted on Egypt, the last one was for everybody, the death of the firstborn. And the only reason Israel got off the hook on that one was because God provided them with the sacrificial lamb whose blood on their doorposts Caused God's wrath to pass them by. In other words they had every des- every reason to deserve it. They were just as guilty in God's sight and just as worthy of that wrath as anybody and God spared them because of the blood of the lamb. And so here we are wandering the wilderness people who have been saved by the blood of the lamb people who have witnessed the plague and how it affects the people who are not saved by the blood of the lamb and we have to decide whether we want to align ourselves with those people or with the people of faith, like Caleb and Joshua. This is a rather famous quote, but it's taken out of context too often. Listen to these words from Joshua, one of the guys who saw the grapes and God's glory and not giants. He said, as they were on the cusp of entering the wilderness, leaving the wilderness, And going into the promised land after 40 years of wandering so that all the unfaithful would die off, this is what he said. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. I'm thinking we're there right now, friends. I think we're there right now. And so the whole point of this series is to say, as for me in my house, as for me in Shiloh, let's serve the Lord. And you know, I'm gonna tell you that there will be people who as we gradually make our way back to wherever it is we're supposed to be, as we gradually find our way to reconstructing this institution, one of the things I'm really devoted to is that we don't go back to being everything we used to be. There's a whole lot of things we don't need to be anymore, and God's just given us a real opportunity to not do that anymore. And I want you to think, if you've been a part of this church for a long time, about the times when things were ugly, when things weren't going the way they should, when people were not looking forward to coming to church because they were wondering what form of drama was going to happen today. When they were hearing all kinds of rumors about people in the church and the pastor and the staff, and, and when people were fighting over stupid stuff like the color of carpet or decorations or the kind of music you like, you know, my word for you is, is as we move back out of the wilderness and into the future God has in store for us, this ain't gonna be a restaurant anymore. It's not going to be a matter of whether you like what's on the menu or not. It's not going to be a matter of whether you like the service or not. It's not going to be a matter of your tastes or your interests. It's going to be a matter of being entirely and utterly devoted to the Lord. And please don't take that wrong. I'm not issuing a challenge. What I'm saying is is look at our times the way they are and see how they're like the times the way they were and recognize that every generation God gives a chance to decide what matters most. Think about the great awakenings of American history. You know what the last great awakening was in American history? Are you ready for this? Because we're in one right now that's like the last one. The last great awakening in America was in the late 60s and the early 70s. And what was that awakening about? Well, it wasn't about what the first two great awakenings were about. And it changed our culture forever. We're in the middle of a Great Awakening right now. Another one is happening. And as for me and my house, let's serve the Lord. Let's not get caught up in trying to make church an expression of our worldly lives. Let it be a refuge from our worldly lives. Let it be a place where we reorient our spiritual lives because our worldly lives have gotten a little overwhelming. Amen? That's what this is about. That's what this message is about. This whole series of messages is gonna be about that. And we're going to look in the book of Revelation to see how Jesus scores the churches of the future and the past on how well they did at that. Should be interesting, huh? I can't wait to get started. Well, like most introductory messages, it's longer than usual and more complicated, and I left more on the page than I said. But rest assured, I'm excited about this, and I hope you are too. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up here with a prayer. Almighty God, thank you for your word. I got pretty wound up, Lord, and I worry whenever I do that I'm going to say something stupid. And these days, you can't get away with saying stupid things, Lord. So please, burn upon your people's hearts the truths that came from you. And whatever I said that really wasn't from you, just erase it from their memories. Because nothing is more important than your glory and our commitment to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.